Norway is home to one of the most prosperous and well-managed economies in the world. Everyone from economists to politicians and regular everyday people point to the country as an example of how something should be done. And amusingly, this praise often comes from both sides of economic, political and personal disagreements respectively. The country's small population of just under 5.5 million people were already some of the wealthiest people on the planet in every single measurable way. And yes, economists do use many different ways to measure wealth. Norway enjoyed this immense economic prosperity before something really important happened earlier this year. In early July, the country uncovered the world's largest supply of readily available phosphate. 77 billion tonnes of the material were found in the country's north, effectively doubling the world's supply of this rare resource. This discovery is enough to power the world's needs for things like fertilisers, electronics, and most importantly high performance batteries and solar panels for at least the next century. Conservatively, the discovery is worth around $24 trillion, which even after extraction and shipping costs could take Norway from a very wealthy and successful country to the undisputed richest place on earth, even beating out statistical outliers like Monaco or Liechtenstein. But will this actually happen? The discovery is undeniably a great thing, not only for the people of Norway, but for the world as a whole that will benefit from the food and renewable sources of energy that could be made with this material. But it also introduces some major risks. There are countries that are already reliant on the export of this material that could be heavily impacted by this new supply. What's more is that phosphate is considered a strategic raw material by some of the most powerful geopolitical players in the world. And that's all to say nothing of the fact that this story isn't new. There has already been a country that discovered a large supply of phosphate and made its people the wealthiest population on the planet in just a few short years. But now, today, the country suffers from widespread poverty because it's poorer than when it first made its discovery. It's naive to think that this couldn't happen in Norway, and understanding the country's plans with this new discovery can teach us a lot about some of the most important economic issues in the world today, from the responsible management of natural resources, the economic philosophy of Norway itself, and what separates macroeconomic success from failure. So how is Norway going to manage this new influx of wealth? How could too much of a good thing potentially be the miracle economy's undoing? And finally, what impact will this tiny country's decisions have on some of the most important areas of the global economy? Once we've done all of that, we can put Norway, the channel's longtime go-to for economic success comparisons, on the Economics Explained national leaderboard to see how it really stacks up. It's clearly going to do well, but will it get the top spot? When you're hiring for your small business, you want to have as many top-tier candidates as possible to interview. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Before when I've tried hiring video editors, thumbnail designers, writers and marketing professionals to work with me on this channel, I found it seriously challenging to wade through hundreds of completely unqualified candidates. Hiring can feel like someone turning a fire hose on my face when I've just asked for a glass of water. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates, so easy in fact that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. Thankfully with LinkedIn the process is intuitive, quick and easy. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com ee. That's linkedin.com ee to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. There are four types of economies in the world today. Those that should be economic failures and indeed are economic failures. Those that should be economic failures but still manage to carry on. Those that should be economic successes but are still failures. And those that should be successful and are successful. 
Norway is a remarkable economy, and while it's understandable to think that it's easy for a country to be perfect when they're rich, there are many stories about exactly the opposite happening, and rapid economic growth becoming a country's long-term undoing. This could have happened to Norway on more than one occasion. Before the 1970s, Norway was not a particularly wealthy economy, especially by Western European or Scandinavian standards. It wasn't poor by any means, because it did benefit from being able to trade directly with some of the wealthiest economies in the world at the time, but it certainly wasn't rich, relying mostly on fishing as its largest domestic and export industry. That all changed though when in the late 1960s the country discovered large and exploitable oil and natural gas deposits in the North Sea. Production began in the early 1970s, operating primarily under Statoil, a company created by the Norwegian government for the purposes of extracting, refining and selling the oil reserves that were discovered years earlier. Other private companies were allowed to operate in the fields as well, since a lot of them were responsible for the risky exploration work that found the deposits in the first place. But Norway mandated that the state must have 50% participation in every production license that was sold to private companies. The economic justification for this process was that the oil within the country's borders was the property of its people, so they are the ones that should be profiting from it. But without some kind of potential reward, no companies would take the risk to explore for even more oil and gas, which could potentially make those people even more money. This balanced approach also made the country very popular for other oil investments. Statoil itself, which was later renamed Equinor, also went beyond just extracting and selling crude petroleum and natural gas because it also invested into refineries, which processed all of these fossil fuels and made it possible to sell directly to consumers in Europe, which was at the time the second largest market in the world for energy after only North America. Today the country has so much oil refining capacity that it actually imports even more crude petroleum from countries like Sweden and in the past Russia, because their facilities are so efficient and well managed that it's worth it to send unrefined oil there and then have them ship it or pipe it to end users. The money the Norwegian government has made from these natural resources is immense. While the total operation might be relatively small compared to major oil producers like the Gulf states, Russia and even the USA, Norway has historically kept a remarkably high share of those revenues for itself and its people. This is opposed to a lot of other countries where most of the money has gone to benefit those natural resource companies, with the state and ultimately the people getting whatever is left over. Ahem. Norway again also had a bit of luck on their side here because they were a member of NATO and didn't have the same geopolitical struggles that a lot of other countries that discovered vast natural resources in the decades after the Cold War. We're in the process of working with geopolitical experts to create a new channel that will address this stuff in much more detail with much more expertise and real world experience, so stay tuned for that because that's all I can say about it for now. It also must be recognised that Norway has an incredibly small population, so any revenues are not going to be split thin. Now, making sure that natural resource revenues actually go to the people instead of a handful of oil companies or well-connected politicians is just the first step in making sure that they're used responsibly to build a successful economy instead of being squandered and causing all kinds of problems. It's also, surprisingly, probably the easiest step. Norway did have some advantages here because when it found oil it was already a robust democracy and while it wasn't rich, it did have enough capital to create its own oil extraction infrastructure, where a lot of oil rich countries in sub-Saharan Africa for example are going to be more dependent on a foreign entity to fund their extraction and therefore be more beholden to their demands. Despite its advantages, Norway still handled the rapid discovery of natural resources incredibly well, because there are dozens of other advanced and democratic countries that have let themselves be bullied by resource companies into giving away a more than a fair share of their natural wealth. Again, not looking outwardly at any country in particular. Now the hardest part was making sure that those revenues went towards genuinely improving the economy. 
There have been a few strategies employed by various countries around the world to varying degrees of success in the past. Venezuela, for all of its problems, did effectively, at least initially, turn a lot of its oil revenues over to its people through generous social programs and low taxes. But this created a strange anomaly in the market and made the country very unstable because it turned into a political race of who could give away the most money. These problems were in some ways the cause of and were in turn heightened by sanctions imposed on the country as well. The US state of Alaska also does something similar by paying its residents a share of oil revenues every year and levying no state income taxes. Alaska has the advantage of being a US state and it was already wealthy and politically stable so these policies didn't radically reshape its economy like it did in Venezuela. Other countries have used their oil revenues to fund lavish development projects with at least the supposed intention of encouraging the growth of tourism and international business operations in the country, which should in theory replace the oil industry when wells run dry or global demand for fossil fuels subsides. There is nothing inherently wrong with this kind of plan, although a lot of the countries pursuing this system have had transparency issues, where it has become difficult to tell if sometimes completely unchallenged leaders are investing money into sports teams because they see it as a good long-term investment for their country's sports and tourism industry, or because they have practically unlimited money and just really like particular sports stars. This strategy also has the problem of just shifting natural resource benefits away from foreign oil companies and to any type of company, because a key part of the development strategies of places like the UAE, Qatar and Saudi Arabia has been very low or zero taxes on businesses and individuals. If these tax laws didn't exist, it's unlikely that a lot of businesses would bother to set up operations in these countries. And once oil revenues run out, it's unclear if these countries are going to be able to sustain this combination of high spending and low taxes. Norway took a different approach. Even today, its taxes on businesses, individuals and economic activities like sales and owning land are all very high. Its national income tax rate seems low, but after including regional taxes and other levies, even non-exceptionally high earners can end up paying more than half of their income to the government. That's also not including sales taxes or value-added tax. And Norway has one of the highest rates for this in the world, taxing 25% of the purchase price of most goods and in some cases even more for things like alcohol. Outwardly, it's also very hard to see where all of this money is going. Norwegian cities are fine, but pretty basic. There are no kilometre high skyscrapers or man-made islands, and that's because of course, as regular viewers of the channel will know, instead of directly giving their citizens money or spending it on big flashy infrastructure projects, it instead takes all that money and puts it into a national savings account called a sovereign wealth fund. Today the total value of the government pension fund of Norway is over 1.6 trillion US dollars, which is an almost 50% increase from when we explored this country as the first video ever on this channel, or at least the first one that's still around. That increase has been helped by inflation, which has obviously not been insignificant over the past four years, investment returns which have also been very strong, and perhaps most importantly because the invasion of Ukraine and the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline was a golden opportunity for Norway to become Europe's almost exclusive natural gas provider. 1.6 trillion US dollars works out to be almost 330,000 US dollars for every man, woman and child who is a citizen of Norway. Which means if this fund was just directly handed over to everyone, Norwegians would be the richest people on the planet. Of course, that's not what the government does, and it doesn't directly spend it either, which has its advantages. Eventually this money is taken out to fund public spending, but before that it sits in the sovereign wealth fund, and the clue to why that's important is in the name of the fund itself. The government pension fund, or well technically the Staten's pension fund. Oh sorry to any Norwegian speakers watching. Anyway, the pension fund is not actually to fund pensions, at least not exclusively. It's a fund to act as a pension when just like someone can no longer work, Norway can no longer rely on oil revenues. It's for when oil retires, not the people. 
The idea is that there will be enough invested there to make up for the lost oil revenues in investment revenues, and already they are pretty close. And that's the first big advantage, the state will eventually make even more money than it would if it had spent its oil revenues directly. Another advantage is the stability it gives the country. Natural resource dependent economies often find themselves in a position where their economy can only be as good as the price of their export materials in international markets, which can fluctuate wildly on even an hourly basis, let alone the years and decades over which good economic planning should take place. By putting all of its revenues into a wealth fund, the Norwegian economy has effectively given itself a shock absorber to these wild swings. If oil prices are high and the country makes lots of revenues, it can put money into this fund, putting it on track to be independent of even needing those oil revenues at all in the future. If oil prices drop and revenue falls, then it can always dip into this fund to pay for services without taking on debt or otherwise disturbing economic functions. Thanks to its relatively high tax rates, it hasn't ever really needed to do this, but it gives the country a lot of security to know that it is possible. Those taxes also contribute to economic stability in less obvious ways as well. Taxes can be used to control an economy. If it needs a boost, governments can lower taxes, leaving more money for people to spend and invest, giving a helping hand to businesses and ultimately employment. If an economy is running a little bit too hot, and things like inflation or inequality are becoming a problem, then a government can raise taxes or adjust tax brackets to address these issues directly. If a government doesn't raise taxes because it can fund its expenditure through other revenue sources, then it gives up this control, which even the most libertarian economists tend to acknowledge is a major weakness. Beyond that, taxes also create something of a social contract between the government and its people. If people pay taxes, they naturally become more engaged with what their government is doing with their tax dollars, so things like corruption or government officials embezzling funds to enrich themselves become far more heavily scrutinised. The model that Norway has used to collect and capitalise on its natural resource wealth has obviously been a winner, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's as easy as copying and pasting this strategy onto any country that discovers a massive reserve of natural resources. There may be no clearer demonstration of this fact than what Norway does with its newly discovered trillions. The discovery of the country's phosphate reserves has the potential to make North Sea oil and natural gas almost insignificant by comparison. For scale, the estimated value of these phosphate deposits is slightly greater than the value of oil reserves in Saudi Arabia at current global prices. Where Norway is just one of dozens of major players in the fossil fuels market, a market that despite organised monopolies is still very competitive, Norway would be one of only two countries in the world to control the supply of phosphate. What's more is that while countries around the world try to shift away from fossil fuel dependency, demand for phosphate is probably only going to grow because it is a vital material that gets used in a lot of the very same products that the world is going to need to shift away from oil. Phosphate is refined and used in everything from high performance batteries to solar panels, in addition to its primary use as a fertiliser to feed the world's 8 billion people. Before this discovery, phosphate only really existed in one other country, Morocco, and its abundance of this natural resource made it of keen interest to a lot of major powers around the world that wanted to make sure that their economies could produce all of these phosphate dependent technologies, and would potentially even prefer it if their global rivals couldn't. The EU, the USA and China all classify phosphate as a strategically important material. What that means is that just like rare earth metals and uranium, it can't be traded internationally to just anybody. Norway is not a member of the EU, but given this discovery it is going to become a country of keen interest to most of the major economic powers in the world, which is just as much of an opportunity as it is a potential risk. The country that this is obviously worst for though is Morocco, which was not a wealthy country to begin with, and almost 25% of its total economic activity and international trade was centred around the export and processing of this one material. 
If Norway starts to extract and sell this material in bulk, it will inevitably drive prices down in international markets and offer a more stable, more business friendly alternative to countries and companies that want a consistent supply of this highly coveted resource. This is great for Norway and the world, but that all unfortunately comes at the expense of Morocco. It's too early to say for sure yet, but the revenues from the extraction of this resource will likely also be directed into the government pension fund, which could conservatively triple its value over the coming decade, meaning every single Norwegian citizen would have a million US dollars indirectly invested on their behalf. It would be expected that such a massive boost to the country's economy would make national headlines, but in our research and consultation with locals in the country, we could only find two articles talking about the discovery at all, and one of them was mocking all of the other international news outlets for making such a big deal about natural resources. Now, the country's almost comical disregard for one of the largest natural resource discoveries per capita in history is in many ways down to something that a lot of economists, especially macroeconomists, tend to overlook. Culture. Now, as much as we try and focus on hard data and well-defined market policies when studying economics, it's important to remember that economics is a social science that studies above all else how people interact with things of value. So it stands to reason that those people's values are very important, and Norway's economics is perhaps the greatest example of this in action. Norway alongside the other Scandinavian countries infamously have a very egalitarian culture that has in a lot of ways permeated into their economic systems. A lot of the economists and commentators will point out that Norway technically does not have a mandated minimum wage, but that's only because workers unions in the country are incredibly strong and almost every worker earns a relatively high wage. The trade-off to that is that highly skilled workers don't earn very much compared to what they could make in other Western European countries and especially in the USA, and that difference becomes even larger when considering taxes which are higher in Norway. Norway definitely does not need to charge such high taxes to fund basic government functions, but they still do because they want to offer services like free education, free healthcare, very strong welfare and top-notch infrastructure spending. The government is also not shy about the fact that they use income taxes to directly control inequality. Low income earners don't pay much, but high income earners pay a lot. This culture of an active hand is clear in other areas of the economy as well. Perhaps somewhat ironically, Norway, for all of its fossil fuel production, actually gets a vast majority of its energy from hydroelectric power stations. This was a major investment compared to something like a natural gas power plant which the country could easily power with its own domestic supply of fossil fuels. But the country made the investment anyway because they not only wanted to be environmentally friendly, within their borders at least, but if it wasn't already obvious, they want to set up an economy where they're not only not going to be impacted by the loss of their fossil fuel industry, they won't even realise when it's gone. Now free high quality education funded by higher taxes in a country with not many opportunities to earn an extremely high income is something that we've seen before in a few other countries like Germany, Italy and France, and it always created the problem of brain drain. There is nothing to stop Norwegian citizens getting a university degree fully funded and then moving to a country where they will earn much more, pay less tax and likely have lower living expenses. One other trade off to everybody being fairly well off is that everything is extremely expensive. A quick side note is that economists often use something called the Big Mac Index to roughly measure living expenses between different countries. The end cost of a Big Mac comprises local labour costs, food costs, transport costs, real estate costs and taxes, so it's a surprisingly close comparison to a regular consumer price index calculation, which instead of just taking one Big Mac, takes a long list of consumer goods and compares their costs to come up with living expenses. Anyway. Norway has the second most expensive Big Macs in the world, behind only Switzerland. So it is an expensive place to live. 
Now with this high cost of living, high level of education, high taxes and highly skilled population, it would be sensible to expect that Norway would have a major problem with brain drain. As in, as soon as the country has trained up its young workers, they just leave to go and make more money elsewhere. Again, this is very similar to the problems faced in a lot of Western European countries. But in Norway, they don't leave. The country has one of the lowest rates of human flight in the world. The reason is simply culture. Norwegians could earn more, but they don't really need to. Of course, this is a generalisation, but they have everything provided to them in their country. They don't really value big, expensive luxuries, and workers are given a lot of freedoms that just can't be found elsewhere. Most workers in Norway don't want to give that up just to earn some more money. Now, obviously sociology is not our specialty here at EE, but everyone that we spoke to in Norway while working on this video spoke about the law of Yanta which is 10 rules that were initially created in a work of fiction to criticise homogenous society, but has become almost a rulebook for how to live in Norway. Now, while this has either been really nice or potentially dystopian, it has also meant that there has not been as much pressure on the government to ease taxes or disperse oil revenues as there would be in most other countries. So while again, what they have done in Norway has been highly successful, it wouldn't be that easy to replicate in most other countries. Even those that are blessed enough to have trillions of dollars worth of natural resources to share amongst a tiny population. Okay, now it's time to put Norway, the country that seems to have everything going for it, on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. Starting as always with size, Norway has a GDP of 579 billion US dollars, making it the 24th largest economy in the world, right between its regional peers, being slightly larger than Belgium and slightly smaller than Sweden. Still, this is a major global economy and it gets a 7 out of 10. That very respectable GDP is spread out over a very small population of just 5.4 million people, giving the country a GDP per capita of $106,149. That is the second highest per capita output of any country in the world, apart from Luxembourg and micronations like Monaco. The difference in Norway is that this number is entirely legitimate. In microstates, many workers live outside of the country and then commute in for a job before leaving to go back home at the end of the day. This is particularly common in places like Monaco, where someone serving coffee simply could not afford to live there. What this does is boost the country's output, the numerator in this equation, without actually increasing its population, the denominator, artificially making the people that live there look more productive than they really are. Norway is a very large, very isolated country with very few people working there that would not be counted as full-time residents. So, accounting for that, the Norwegian people are the most productive on Earth. They would get a 10 out of 10 anyway, but it's important to emphasise that they really did legitimately earn it. Now stability and confidence is also very strong. The country's social cohesion, robust democratic system and intense focus on building a financial safety net with its immense sovereign wealth fund means that Norway is probably one of the safest economies in the world. It gets a 10 out of 10. Growth has been one of Norway's weaker metrics. It's not been immune from the general slowdown in Europe, which is its biggest export customer. A lot of this slow growth is also by design as well. If the government was really worried about growth, they could easily lower taxes and increase spending. They have the reserves to do it. But they also already have the most productive people on the planet, so if any country gets a pass for not growing rapidly over the last decade, it's Norway. In total, it's sustained about a 2% growth rate over that time, with a dip in the middle and some rapid growth over the past two years. That trend is almost certainly going to continue as it starts to export phosphate, on top of increasing the production of natural gas to make up for the lost Russian supply. But for now, it gets a 6 out of 10. Industry is interesting in Norway. A lot of countries have struggled to develop competitive industries outside of oil and natural gas because those exports dominate everything else. 
It's an issue so common that we've had to explore it in dozens of videos, but Norway doesn't have that same problem. Obviously, given that it's such a small country, it doesn't have any major world-shaping industries, apart from maybe phosphate production soon. Even still, it has still established incredible value-adding international services like shipping administration, sustainable fishery, and of course, it must be recognised financial investment. The trillions of dollars they have invested around the world is getting put into developing other industries to make the world a richer place. Norway gets an 8 out of 10 for industry, only missing out on getting anything higher because its small size means that it struggles to be globally dominant in anything. Altogether, that gives Norway an average score of 8.2 out of 10, putting it up here on the leaderboard, just coming short of the top spots because of slower than average growth, which is likely to improve in the coming years, and that honestly the country probably doesn't care too much about anyway. Now, we have addressed a number of countries that took natural resource opportunities, and instead of building out an economic success story like Norway, somehow managed to use that wealth to make their economy worse off overall. We as always didn't want to repeat too much here, but we've made a playlist of all of those countries that you should be able to click to on your screen now. Thanks for watching mate, bye.